and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I'm speaking with the author of Pullman, The Man, The Company, The Historical Park, Kenneth Schoon. George Pullman's legacy lies in the town that bears his name. As one of the first thoroughly planned model industrial communities, it was designed to give the comforts of a permanent home to the employees who built America's most elegant form of overnight railroad travel. But the town was more than just a residential wing of sleeper car manufacturing. Its 1894 railroad strike led to the National Labor Day holiday. In the early 20th century, the Pullman Company became the country's largest employer of African Americans, who then formed the nation's first successful black labor union. Author Kenneth Schoon revisits Pullman's monumental history and the lessons it continues to provide. Kenneth, thanks for being on. Oh, looking forward to it. Yes, sir. So living here in Charleston, of course, we have a bit of railroad history, and you touch on that in the book uh, by talking about that first six-mile trip. Mm-hmm. But things slowly begin to grow, just like with any new industry. Um, and technology advances, and we learn, of course, how we can better use machines. Uh, other areas of industry grow, but the early days of passenger travel were pretty spartan, weren't they? Yes, they were. Uh, the and, and that's I think because the the first oh for the first number of years trains didn't go far enough that you that anybody cared about comfort. Um, you know, there wooden chairs and uh, maybe tables, but uh, my guess is the earliest trains didn't have chairs bolted to the floor. They just just had you know, chairs that you, you picked up and brought inside. Uh, so sort of like riding in a boxcar with windows. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and, and so nobody was concerned about feeding passengers. Certainly nobody was concerned about putting them up for the night because the trains didn't travel at night. Uh, it may have been a, a four-hour ride for to get 30 miles or something like that. But uh, it was all... It was all daytime, and people ate and slept when they got to their destination. It was only years later, and I think uh, I'm not really comfortable with the history of uh, trains in the South after the earliest days. Uh, but uh, people eventually needed to eat on the longer mm -hmm. trips. People brought their own food along for a while, and then, as the book explains, uh, there'd be salesmen and vendors waiting at the various stations uh, because they knew the passengers would be hungry. Yeah, I mean, if you even if you, you know, the story of the great locomotive chase, you know, it's a bit of Southern history, even in the Civil War. If you remember the general, um, when you know the first recipients of the Medal of Honor, the um, Union. Uh, soldiers who come down and they take the general to tear up trails on their way trying to get to Chattanooga. Uh, the train had stopped at Big Shanty outside of Kennesaw for, for the passengers to get a bit to eat and to uh, have uh, more passengers to come on. So that was the whole reason they had stopped too uh, at that time. Because uh, they didn't, like you had said in the book, they didn't have at that point in time service on board. Uh, so right. it's it's incredible. You know, even you know, in another type of industry, it kind of reminded me when you said that you know they 
didn't even have chairs maybe bolted onto the board to the floor you know it wasn't any kind of special chair i was looking at something the other day about early airline travel and they had wicker chairs in these early planes and it, you know it was nothing special so it's just learning almost on the fly as you go um with these different type of travel. And also you said in the book too, about some of the early railroad cars were basically, uh, uh, the, what was it in the old West? They would travel by uh, the words escaping me now. Stagecoach. Stagecoach. Yes. Stagecoach cars on rail. Uh, It's you used what you had and you innovated on the fly. Um, Well, yes. When you think of the normal intercity, travel was in a stagecoach and now you're creating uh, a rail road and by the way the earliest railroads uh, were horse driven mm-hmm. uh, and uh, my part of uh, northwest indiana uh, we had uh, a number of they were rail roads in other words they were roads that had steel or wooden rails uh, but a horse pulled a cart down down the rail um and that that continued for, for a number of years uh before they replaced the horse and the, so the horse is not pulling something that looks like today's railroad car they were pulling something that looked much more like the stagecoaches that the horses were used to pulling and the f- pictures that have always seemed odd to me are where you have several of those stagecoach cars all hooked to each hooked to each other the way railroad cars are today and then pulled by an old-fashioned locomotive uh, and there's no way to get from one car to the next car uh, you got in took your seat the way you would at a, in a stagecoach and you stayed in that seat until you got to your destination yeah because there's no place to go except to jump out of a moving stagecoach yeah you really can't get up stretch your legs or anything you're there that's where you're gonna sit stay now have you have you done much travel by passenger train no i get to get on the train at a museum maybe and ride around we just recently did it in savannah we took a trip down to savannah to do it it's something i want to do maybe not on amtrak i'm not thrilled right now with their overnight travel Um, i would like to do it in europe more but i do want to take a trip by train absolutely i do (laughs) well uh, i used to take the train into chicago uh, occasionally, and uh, several times you would walk from one. If if you got into a car and it was filled, there were no empty seats. Then you walked through the car to the other end, passed out of that car into the next one to see if there were any seats in that car. Uh, and the area be, the, between the cars uh, was called the vestibule. The walls looked uh, like an accordion; they were pleated. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, you know, the train would go around bends and mm-hmm. things of that sort, and it needed to be, the walls needed to expand and contract and uh, and all that. I did not know that that vestibule was invented by one of the Pullman uh, employees, and no trains had anything like that beforehand. Uh, so if you wanted to go from one car to another, uh, before the vestibules were invented, it was really dangerous. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure most most people would, w- wouldn't give it a try. 
but I thought of that as being sort of a natural thing. I couldn't even imagine train passenger trains without those things. Uh, but indeed, they used to be in the early days, even in the early days with Pullman cars. Uh, it was very dangerous going from one car to another until uh, an employee, and we don't know who it was who invented that. Uh, what he did was, uh, well, anytime you invent something, if you get a patent, uh, the patent belongs to the company you worked for if you were employed at the time that you did the research and the inventing. And that's what happened to this fellow. He invented it. Uh, he gave the drawings to his boss, and his boss actually got the credit for inventing it. Uh, but uh, those were called vestibules, and now they are as so common on uh, railroad cars even today that people can't imagine that there was ever a day that you didn't have them. Yes, you almost don't even think about them now. Right. You know, it, uh, you brought up Pullman, and you know, let's get to Pullman because before reading the book, I did know about the cars because I, nerd alert, I am a bit of a model railroader. But okay. I didn't know a lot about the man, and wow, I do now from your book. And he's he's an amazing, interesting character. Um, who was Pullman before he was the man that we know of has Pullman cars? Well, the, uh, he, he grew up in western New York near the Erie Canal. And uh, he, I guess his first job was as a, as a foreman. Uh, his, his dad moved houses for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and I assume it was hit and miss until he got a contract with the state of New York to move uh, houses near the Erie Canal. Uh, there were a whole bunch of houses that were built too close to the canal, and they had to move them back because they were widening the canal. And uh, Pullman's first work was with his brothers, and he learned to be a carpenter. But he was never all that good with his hands, and it, it turned out that he was better at bossing people around <laughs> than uh doing a lot of that work himself but it was still work that required him to be at the job site so uh, he he might hire six or seven fellows to help him move some houses um but uh he he would be the one to say this is the house we're going to do next and you guys do this and i'll i'll give you the signal for when we start moving and and things of that sort Uh, unfortunately for him in the short run, maybe fortunately in the long run, uh, when his dad passed away, he found himself uh, the go-to person for the company. Um, and he sort of became the, the, new, uh, the new head boss. Uh, and that way meant he also had to take care of finances and making sure bills were paid on time and his employees were paid and things of that sort. But it was you know, a small operation. I, I don't think he had more than 12 employees at any one time when he was working in New York. But when the Erie Canal was finished and the widening was done, he realized he was going to lose his contract. You know, they weren't going to ask him to do more work because the work was done. And by curiosity, or not by curiosity, by 
you could say fate. Um, he was at a, a social gathering and talking to a woman from Chicago who referred to the number of buildings in Chicago that had to be not just moved, but lifted. Uh, Chicago was Chicago is built on Lake Michigan bottom land. Lake Michigan used to be bigger than it is now. And what is now the city of Chicago, and in fact, where I live in Northwest Indiana, was about 10,000 years ago, the bottom of Lake Michigan. So it's pretty flat. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't much higher than the lake itself. And uh, the streets flooded. Well, when you have flooded, flooding streets a lot, you want to put in sewers that t take that water away. But the sewers would then be below the level of the water table. And the sewers would just be 100% filled with water all the time and not take any more from the surface. And I, I find this is a, a bold thing to do, but the city council of Chicago decided the city needs to be eight feet high, no, six to eight feet higher than it is now. And so they began a, a, a process of paying contractors to lift up buildings by four, six, or eight feet, depending on you know what elevation it was to start with and where it needed to be finished up. Uh, using a, a bunch of screws, jacks, jacks like, uh, not exactly like you lift up a car, but it's the same process. But these were these you you twist it around like a screw, and it gradually lifted the building. But it might take eight eight hundred of these screws around the foundation of a building, and wow. all eight hundred all eight hundred had to be turned at the same time. And so what he devised was a system where uh, he would blow a whistle and there would be one worker on every screw, jack screw, and he would blow a whistle and everybody would then pull with a lever and raise and, and make the screw do one quarter turn. <laughs> and then, then you rest. And then he'd blow the whistle again and they'd go do another quarter turn. And uh, in this way, in in a full day's work, you could raise a building, you know, a, a foot or so, um, depending on how much time you needed in between. And of course, things go wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, some somebody's screws not going to be uh, set up right, and it's going to fall off, and they're going to have to repair this, or some of the timbers are going to break. And so. Uh, things slowed the process down, but eventually the building would be up to the height that they wanted and uh, they would set it, uh, build a new foundation underneath the building, usually then provide a basement uh, under the building because the ground level is low. And uh, so the buildings were high and then they would, the city built the street at the new level of the buildings and put the sewer underneath the street, which was higher than the street used to be. The, the rainwater could then uh, drain down into Lake Michigan and dry out the city. And Pullman actually, when he was in New York, got the contract to raise uh, a hotel in Chicago because the hotel owner's wife uh, was visiting the same place where he lived and they were at a party together 
Right place, right time. Yep. Uh, She described the problem. He realized that's something we could do. And Chicago's a growing city. And this part of New York is, you know, as soon as we're done working, we're done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the boats are just going to go past us, you know, on this finished canal. So uh, so he moved to New York and he hired a bunch of people and uh, the, the city got raised. But they would do hotels, you know, eight story hotel, brick hotel buildings uh, and raise them six or eight feet. And uh, uh, it was an expensive proposition, but he did very well. And he was used to <clears throat> being the foreman. Uh but what was interesting is he was always out with his men uh, doing the job. Uh, as things progressed and he started building railroad cars, his brother, uh, who was a carpenter, basically took over the operation of of working in the plant where the cars were being built. And George Pullman uh, did spent most of his time finding customers to buy his cars or later on to lease them and, uh, you know, buy, buying the equipment that he needed and uh, doing all the office work, uh, hiring uh, clerks to make sure everybody got paid and things of that sort. But George Pullman then no longer recognized any of his workers by face but or by name. Before he started building the cars, he... He's always one, just like you mentioned with him finding a way to better raise the buildings by blowing the whistle and doing a quarter turn. He saw a problem with sleeper cars because he was on a sleeper car, experienced riding on a sleeper car, and did not care for that experience. And that's That's what inspired him to do something about it. He saw there was a need and that he could do something to make this experience better. Yes, and, indeed. And he does it. He does it while he's raising the city of Chicago too, right? Like he, this is something he's a side project kind of for him. Yeah, he does. But the, one of the big misconceptions uh, is that he did not invent the sleeping car. Yeah. They were already, you know, they were poor, poor quality. They were bunk beds basically attached to the wall. Um, and he wasn't the only company his wasn't the only company that made these things on, on, you know, for 30 or 40 years. Uh, the East Coast uh, had uh, two, two companies mm-hmm. that were his competitors. Uh, one of them mainly controlled by Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, and the other one controlled by uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie. And one of his, one of Pullman's uh, biggest uh, uh, job, well, biggest uh, contracts was when he and Andrew Carnegie agreed to merge. Yeah. And he basically took over all of Carnegie's work. After his death, after Pullman's death, his uh, replacement as president, who was Abraham Lincoln's son, uh, Robert, then bought the last remaining competitor, which was the one that Cornelius Vanderbilt had uh, had control over in the earlier days. And so after Pullman's death, the Pullman company was basically making all the sleeping cars in the United States. 
just the, I mean, when you think about the fact that this was a side project while he's raising Chicago, and I'm going to get to something else too in a second here. I mean, it's unbelievable. But then you know you brought up, and that was something I was going to bring up a little bit later. But let's go ahead and talk about it since you brought it up. Him and Carnegie, um, they see each other at a dinner. They're competitors. Carnegie brings up this idea. You know, he says, and let's call it Pullman. You know, if we you know if we join forces together, and, and you know, and you bring up the history, and I didn't know this history that they go up and talk together. But Union Pacific gets into some trouble. Union Pacific Railroad. Everybody knows the UP. Union Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. They get into trouble, and Pullman and Carnegie bail them out. And we may not have Union Pacific as we know it today if it wouldn't be for them, because I went and did a little bit more of a dive on this. It's it's unbelievable, all these things that you know we think of. Basically, I just thought of Pullman has... Okay, sleeper cars, you know, and passenger cars. They, you know, cars I, I enjoy having on my little model railroad cars that I've enjoyed going and visiting and walking through at, at museums, whether it be uh, a passenger car, an executive car I've gotten to go in, or if, for instance, at the Southeast Railroad Museum in, uh, in Georgia, up uh, in Duluth or Swanee, in that area, they have the car that uh, Harding rode on in his trip out west that you can go on. And see, so these cars, you know, these magnificent cars, you can go on. That's what. But there is so much more to this man, and you did a great <laughs> job bringing him to life in this book, because um, he was such a complicated character. He he was certainly complicated, uh, but he he realized when he was on the train that he would gladly have paid more money for a more comfortable bed. Yeah, and he figured that other people would too. And one of the things I think that sets him apart is it wasn't just a more comfortable bed. He wanted all of his uh, customers, the passengers on the train, to, to feel wealthy, to, to have the same attentive service that wealthy people had in their own homes. And so uh, that's, that's when he started uh, working with, with uh, African-American men who many of them had been house slaves in the uh, pre-Civil War days. And as such, uh, they, they occupied jobs that in, in England uh, one would call a butler, perhaps. Uh, or uh, uh, the, uh, let's see. Uh, Footman I almost. Like... I watched Downton Abbey, but I can't remember the name of the the uh, the, the, the job where you, you help the boss get dressed and uh, all of all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. A valet. But, yes. Uh, with with women, it was a lady's maid. With the men, it was. Uh... Hmm. But anyway, I think it was a valet. A valet. Valid. Yeah, yeah valid. Um, and uh, there were you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, gentlemen in the South who owned the slaves who wanted to be treated as as important people and their their enslaved uh, workers uh, were uh, that's what they did they were trained that way and Pullman realized that they would make great uh, attendance on the on his train and so he he hired these black men and I think and the book points out that after several decades Pullman was the largest employer of African-American men in the country. Uh, 
And and these men were well respected in their communities uh, because they dressed well. Uh, They spoke good English. Uh, They were attentive. They were polite, not only to the passengers, but of course they would, because you're trained that way, it leads to your daily life as well. These, These men were particularly polite to the people that they knew, uh, people on the street and the like. And so they were some of the most respected men in the black community, but they were most disrespected men on the train. Yeah. Uh, they got the lowest sal. The only people who had salaries lower than the porters were the maids who were again, African-American, but in this case, women. Um, and, uh, Pullman looked south to, to find the the employees that he wanted. And uh, when he realized that not every train would, uh, tr- would train these people the same way, uh, he decided he was not going to let anybody train uh, these uh, folks except his own employees that he paid. And that the porters would always be paid by Pullman, no matter if, no matter what railroad line they were on, and the con- the conductors and uh, the engineers and all would be paid by the rail line, but the people in the Pullman cars were paid by Pullman. He hired them, he trained them, he evaluated them, and he fired them if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, but they were poorly paid until they finally were able to unionize. Yeah, and you, and you pointed out that they were it was the first black labor union in the United States. Yes. And what what amazed me when I was doing the research was when the black union, the Brotherhood, uh, was first formed, I, I knew that the, the Pullman Company wouldn't welcome them. You know, it, that's true today. A lot of companies don't want their employees to, to join a union. To join a union because uh, they figure you know th- then people are going to want higher salaries but uh what surprised me was the fact that a lot of the black community didn't support the porters either because they were afraid of retribution oh. that uh, uh the railroad lines would stop advertising in black owned newspapers and uh if the uh, porters became too uppity, uh, then they would just stop hiring African-Americans and uh, hire Filipinos instead. Um, and then all the black men would lose their jobs. Um, so the, the efforts to create that union uh, were very slow, and it took a long time to convince people that... Uh, joining the brotherhood and petitioning to be able to uh, uh, arrange and agree on a contract with the employer was a good idea. And eventually, of course, they did. Yeah. And there was other, you know, unions that were formed and, and there was so much to talk about and we we're kind of coming up on the 30 minute mark now. I mean, before he even started, you know, with the, the palace company and, uh, Foreman, uh, his the a town around Pool, the a town was formed basically for the workers. Just I- 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 incredible, and even before he started fully into Pullman, he had even gone out west to Denver uh, when there was the gold rush out there, which we we don't even have time to touch on. Uh, he 
just an interesting guy. Listeners, you got to get this book and read about it. It's insane, everything he's done. But one thing I do want to touch on before we go are the cars themselves. And you did talk about how he wanted people to feel like they were at home. These weren't train cars that, you know, you think about, you know, we have, you know, maybe beadboard in them or something. These these cars were really almost, you could say, decadent in a way. I mean, they not, were not decadent, but they were very decorative. They had artwork. They they were pieces of art, really, in and of themselves. Yes, they were. Uh, and that didn't last. Uh, but it was uh, very reflective of Victorian furnishings in a in a parlor in a, in somebody's home, uh, w- with lots of draperies and fringe on the end of the draperies, and uh, wallpaper with bold designs on it, and uh, you know very very elaborately uh, decorated, and he made his the interiors of his cars look like that, even painted ceilings. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, when well, I don't mean painted ceilings like you painted white, but with artwork on the ceiling, uh, not not quite the way of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, but uh, many times you would have a, a, a sky, uh, you'd paint it blue and then put in clouds and things of that sort in the in the ceiling. Um, he used mirrors to make rooms look larger. Uh, we still do that today. Uh, in people in in homes and bathrooms and things of that sort not it's not just a way of uh, being able to see yourself but it actually makes rooms look lar- looks look larger and yeah. more luxurious and uh, Pullman Pullman employed all those kinds of things but after after he died primarily uh, and Robert Lincoln became the the head of the company uh, styles in the United States had changed and Victorian furniture was no longer in and the sleek modern design is what was popular and all of a sudden Pullman's cars were old-fashioned and uh, so he uh, so they had to paint over the stuff and get rid of all these draperies and uh, end up with you know very clean modern, uh, 1930s uh, designs. Just uh, even those cars, though. If you go into some of those, uh, the private cars. It, you know, the, the cool thing too with these private cars, you know, some of them have ended up in private collections. And today, I mean, you can, you know, you can, like I said, there are some museums you can go to, and and see these cars. But I'm sure you know about this. There are journeys today by rail and if you i should have said yes when you asked me this earlier if there's cars if there's a train journey i would go on or if i have been on this is when i would like to go on where you can still travel by pullman cars now they're from the 40s and 50s i would definitely love to pay the money to go on um one of these journeys um because even though the cars are from the 40s and 50s and they have that uh that style they it, it just it screams class. It, it screams like travel in luxury. Um, the bedrooms actually, some of them have double beds, which are better than some of the accommodations I see from you know other trains that you can travel on. And it's a, it's just a style that harkens back to an era of where if you traveled, they wanted you to come back again. They they realize that you're paying for an experience 
you're paying to be there and they want to have your business, not just this time, but over and over again. And it's just an error that's gone in that way of customer service. And mm -hmm. I, it would be something that would be very neat to do, something that I would like to do. Um, there's there's a, a group called Unforgettable Vacations. I think it's Unforgettable Vacations uh, that my wife and I uh, did a, a, a vacation with them. And we took a Pullman car uh, from S San Francisco to Portland. And in Portland, then we transferred to a, a boat, a riverboat, and wow. went up the Columbia River uh, for about a week. Uh, but on the, the train, uh, when we left San Francisco, it was nighttime. And we went, I was disappointed at first, because I was expecting one of the old wooden cars that were, you know, with the Victorian uh, designs that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, I got a, a mid 20th century car, still made by Pullman, but the inside was all metal, not wood. And it was still comfortable. And it was, and uh, we, uh, we slept in the, our own room, but then we had our meals uh, in the dome car, which was the next car over. Oh, wow. And, and that, you certainly want to do a, a modern car on that mm -hmm. because the old Victorian cars didn't have dome cars. Uh, but uh, we, had a, we had our uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner there with uh, attendants with white starched jackets and uh, a single uh, red rose on the table in a beautiful vase. And it was, just, it was as close to the old uh, service as you could get. Uh, it was very, very nice. Uh, and then we got on, we got off the train way too early. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to keep going. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay, well, one thing we do need to talk about before we go, just to touch on real quick. Um, mm -hmm. Pullman, Pullman's relationship with the Labor Day holiday. Can you touch on that real quick before we go? Yes. Uh you're, you're familiar with the Pullman strike. Yes. Uh, I don't know if our listeners are, though. We may need to talk about that for the listeners. Yeah. There, there, there was a depression uh, that started in 1893, and in 1894, the, the number of new cars ordered to the Pullman company dropped considerably. Pullman could not afford to pay all of his workers, so he cut their salaries by t something like 20%. But he, I mean, all of his employees, or most of them, lived in buildings that Pullman owned, and he didn't lower the rent. So, and he also deducted the, he got the rent, the rent was what the employees had to pay first, mm -hmm. uh, which left them with very little money to buy food and the other things that they needed. Uh, and so the the Pullman strike uh, was a small company, excuse me, a large company in a small town. But the ARU, the American Railroad Union, supported a strike which was almost nationwide by their union members would not service any car that was carrying Pullman, any train carrying Pullman cars. And the, the strike uh, had national significance uh, but mainly was Midwestern and Western, not East Coast uh, strike. Already at the same time, 
there were movements in the very many states to create a Labor Day holiday. And uh, Congress had uh, toyed with the idea of making it a national holiday, but it was actually during the strike that Congress uh, decided to create a national Labor Day. And uh, so that occurred because of the Pullman strike and because of the uh, animosity between the Pullman workers and the Pullman company. And so the nation can uh, uh, date its its holiday back to the Pullman company. Um, Very cool. Very neat. And uh, yeah. And uh, so but but the idea for the Pullman day, excuse me, for the Labor Day began before the strike. Uh, a number of st states were doing this, and uh, my my editor, uh, not the editor, but the reviewer of the book before it went to the history press, uh, wanted to insert the word finally, uh, that the, the Congress finally adopted Labor Day uh, as a holiday because of the Pullman strike and because this was affecting the whole country, and uh, it was determined that... Well, I guess laborers needed a little more respect than they were getting. Yeah, they were making the country work. Yes. Ken, it's a. Uh, I've kept you long enough. I got to tell you, it's been great talking to you and really enjoyed the book. And I appreciate you letting me learn more about Mr. Pullman. Okay. Well, I, I hope that this conversation was useful to you. Absolutely, it was. Thank you so much for being on. You bet. Thank you, John. Thank you to the audience also for listening. Pullman is now available wherever local books are sold and online at ArcadiaPublishing.com. As always, thanks to Jane and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Jane and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk with you again soon.